0: Please remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 6 to the end, 6 to 24. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden, Eden, to till, till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way the tree of life thus far the reading of god's word this is the word of the lord amen Amen. let's pray together father we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it reveals your son we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word today that you would reveal yourself in greater measure to us father teach us to come to you we pray in jesus name amen. amen please be seated I heard a pastor tell a story once about playing in the yard with one of his kids, and, and this, his kid was a toddler, a young child at the time, and uh, he took him out into the front yard, and he said, let's play in the front yard, but one thing that I want you to do is make sure that you stay out of the mud. Uh, let's just play here on the front porch, uh, but keep yourself out of the mud puddles. I think it had just rained or something like that, and they were having a good time playing out there, and then his his child said to him, okay, daddy, don't look. And so, of course, playing along, he pretended not to look, to look to the side or or close his eyes. And that's when his kid reached and scooped up big handfuls of mud and began to slather himself and play with the sticks in the mud. And and then he said, okay, daddy, you can look. And he, you know, he turned back and they, they continued to play. And and, uh, and then he would say, okay, Daddy, don't look. And every time that he did that, he would, he would turn and he would begin to play in the mud and scoop up the mud and get it all over his clothes and get it all over himself. And some of you have, have stories like that with your kids. You've, you've heard them say, okay, Mommy, okay, Daddy, don't, don't look. Or you've played uh, what, what Rachel and I call guilt, hide, and seek, <laughs> where you catch your kids doing something and all of a sudden they're on the other side of the house and they disappear Right? This, this child, this story stayed with me as I was thinking about uh, the passage this week, because this child is experiencing the problem in our passage. It's the problem of being seen, the problem of being known. Okay, Daddy, don't look. It's the, it's the same problem that Adam and Eve are dealing with in Genesis chapter 3. It's not the way that God originally made them. It's not the way that God originally made us. If we were to just back up one verse into uh, the very end of chapter 2, we would see uh, that it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were seen, they were known by God and by one one another, and they were not ashamed. Being seen, being known was not a problem. But we know, as we just read, and we know also from experience, that things did not stay that way with them or with us. The serpent came in and deceived and tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God, to sin, to go their own way, to make their own choices, to be their own masters. And right where we picked the story up in verse number 6, we see the result of that. And we see now that there is a problem with being seen. And so as we Consider Genesis chapter 3 today. There's a lot of different themes, a lot of different uh, things that we could look at, but we're going to consider this problem of being seen. And so we're going to see the problem of nakedness or the problem of being known. We're going to see man's attempts to solve his problem of being known. And we're going to see the way that God ultimately solves our problem. Let's look at verse numbers, uh, verses 6 and 7 and see the problem. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. As I said before, this whole story revolves around the problem of Adam and Eve's nakedness. That's why when we see them in the story, they're hiding and they're covering up. God comes and calls to Adam and he says, Where are you? And Adam is hiding. And he says, I'm hiding because I'm naked. And God tells him, Who told you that you were naked? Adam and Eve had always been naked. We just saw in Genesis 2:22 that when they were originally created they were naked and unashamed. So in verse 7 when it says that they realized they were naked, that means that they that can't mean that they all of a sudden realized that they didn't have any clothes on. All right, it's not as if their eyes were open and they realized and said, "Oh no, where did all my clothes go?" Right when chapter 2 ended, they were naked and unashamed. Now you see in the Bible being naked means far more than not having clothes. It means being open, vulnerable, seen, exposed, being completely known. That's nakedness. It's far more than whether or not you're clothed. You're naked anytime someone sees you or knows you to the point that you're vulnerable. But now that Adam and Eve have sinned and rebelled against God... Verse 7 tells us they have an awareness of their nakedness. They didn't lose clothes because they had no clothes to begin with, but they did lose something. They lost their moral purity, their innocence, their acceptability, their righteousness. And as a result, they cannot stand to be seen. Being completely known now has become a problem. What we have just read about is the introduction of that noxious combination that rules so much of human life. Guilt, fear, and shame. We were made by God to be both known and loved. But now Genesis 3 tells us that the human condition is that being known, being naked, comes with an acute and painful sense of being unacceptable. We all fear that if we are completely known, then we will not be loved. That in order for others to love us, in fact, we cannot be known. We all have the sense that we need to control what others see of us, just as Adam and Eve. All of a sudden got that awareness. All of a sudden they got that sense when they ate the fruit. We see it in verse 7. That's a truth that we all experience. It's a truth that anyone who has ever accidentally hit the reply all button on an email knows about right if you've ever accidentally done that you know the moment you hit that button there's this terror as you think to yourself I did not mean for everyone to see that I did not mean for everyone to hear that that's why the heated argument stops the second that the car door opens in the church parking lot has that ever has that ever happened to you no, me neither. No, nope. <laughs> not us. <laughs> All right, the most extreme illustration that I can think of uh, to illustrate this would be to modify one of Pastor Sexton's illustrations from a few weeks ago and say, what would it be like if we could take a completely uncut video of your last week and show it on the screens behind us? Not your thought life. Not what's going on inside emotionally, but just everything that you said or did for one week. How much fear, anxiety, insecurity, pride, lust, or selfishness would we see? We all fear that someone will look and see us as we truly are. How often we do not meet even our own professed standards of goodness, let alone the ones that God has set for us. But the scriptures say, as pastor read a moment ago, that God sees and knows us as we truly are, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as it says in the book of Hebrews, "There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to Him, open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account." It's Hebrews 4:13. Friends, this is why Whether you say you believe in God or not, your conscience bears you witness that there is one who sees, there is one who knows you, that his judgment is completely unbiased, totally just, and you know that you don't measure up to his judgment. All of us struggle with the problem of guilt and shame because, like our first parents, all of us struggle with the problem of sin. Adam and Eve became naked, not because they lost their clothing, but because they lost their righteousness. And we do need righteousness. We do need purity. We do need holiness in order to stand before God and other people and be acceptable. And now because of sin, we've lost it. And that's the problem. It's the problem that all of us face. That's the first thing that we see in this passage, is our problem. The second thing we see is man's attempt to deal with the problem of his nakedness, to deal with the problem of guilt and shame by attempting to cover ourselves. We see that in just the space of a a few short verses, Adam and Eve attempt to cover their nakedness by hiding. They make coverings for themselves with fig leaves in verse 7. They hide themselves from the presence of God in verse 8. And then, when God questions them about their sin, they immediately begin to blame others and make excuses in verses 12 and 13. God comes to Adam and he asks him, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it? And Adam says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, She gave me of the tree, and I ate. And God looks at Eve and says, what is this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. It's the woman's fault. It's the serpent's fault. This is the place where I I cannot help but insert the old preacher's joke, right? That Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Right? God immediately goes to him and deals with him. I said that at the co-op last week or the, or, or the week before. And apparently that is not a saying in the younger crowd. I got a ton of blank looks. <laughs> I said that earlier. But Adam and Eve, they blame others, they make excuses, and they tempt, attempt to hide their sin. Fig leaves are Adam and Eve's attempt to be in the presence of others with their sin and still be acceptable. See, the Bible teaches that because of sin, we all have this innate sense that we can no longer be known and accepted. And we all tend to cover ourselves with whatever we believe will make us acceptable and conceal those things that we believe will make us Unacceptable. We all tend to cover ourselves with whatever it is we think will make us acceptable before God and others. And we all have a drive to conceal those things that we believe make us unacceptable. This plays out in everyday interactions, and it plays out in some of the deepest drives in your heart. Let me show you. Let me show you. Just, just this week, um, I walked into our living room. And it was a total wreck. There were toys and books all over the floor. There were shoes on the window sills for some reason. And our three-year-old Agnes was sitting in the middle of this giant pile of stuff. And so I, I came to her and I said, oh, well, let's, um, let's pick up. Let, I'll help you. We'll, let's do it together. We'll pick up this room. And Agnes looked up at me and she said, Why? Are friends coming over? All <laughs> right, even at three years old, she has seen the pattern. She knows that we clean up the most when other people are going to see our house. Incidentally, I told her, no, uh, friends are not coming over, but you did just make it into the sermon this coming weekend, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why do some of us clean up so much only when other people are coming over? Yes, there is a, there's a certain level of cleanliness that, I, that uh, shows love and hospitality to your guests. I get that. But there are some of you that feel the need to scrub the baseboards and wipe the cupboards and have every crumb picked up and every spot wiped away and every wrinkle smoothed. Why? Because you don't want others to see what your house is actually like when you're living there. Or if you've ever been in a conversation, say, at the potluck, and it's turned to a book that you've never read or a topic that you know nothing about. Do you you tend to get very, very still and very, very quiet and just hope that nobody asks your opinion about whatever it is they're talking about? Why do you do that? You don't want to show your ignorance. You don't want people to know, I've never read that book. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's embarrassing to say. I might have drawn that one from my own life. Okay. <laughs> it comes out in everyday interactions. It also comes out in deeper drives in our heart. There's a darker side to covering and concealing. It's why some of you simply cannot say no at work. Even though you know that you should, even though you know that you're exhausted. You cannot say no when the phone rings. At 11 o'clock at night, and they need someone to get it done, you say, yes, I'll do it. Why? You might lose your reputation as the dependable one, the one who can always be counted on to get it done, the one who can always be counted on to make it happen. That's you. That's your reputation. That's your righteousness, and you cannot lose it. That's why some of us find it just about impossible to admit fault or confess sin to our brothers and sisters especially if no one knows about that sin. If that's you, then silence is the tree that you prefer the most. When it comes to your sins, they're secret. No one knows about them, and no one will know about them. When you are in silence, that place, when you are like Adam and Eve and you've blown it, you've messed up, you've sinned, do you resolve that no one will know and that you will simply do better and try harder next time? That's a fig leaf. That's stitching together a righteousness of your own in order to present to God and other people. That combination of silence and effort is absolutely exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting and it is so So common in churches. Writing about this very problem, the German pastor and theologian, martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He says, Quote, The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin. End quote. At the end of the day, that is the effect of all of the covering up, of all of the hiding, all of the concealing, the silence, the excuse making, is this: it's loneliness. Did you hear that in the quote? He said, We remain alone with our sin. You can see that in the text, that sin isolates, sin separates, sin wants to stay in the darkness. And being outside of Christ, outside of Christ, being known and being accepted, being known and loved, are at odds with one another. All right? They are at odds with one another. The more That people know about me, the more unacceptable they will see that I am. And the more that people accept me, the less that they will know me. And so it is very often that people who are most accepted feel the most alone. Bonhoeffer continues, he says this, quote, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate corporate worship, common prayer, and all of their fellowship in service may still be left to their loneliness. If you're constantly surrounded by friends and family and crowded rooms and you're still very, very lonely, could it be that you are not allowing yourself to be truly known? It very well could be. The fig leaves... The concealing, the hiding that we do, don't have to be bad things. They're not evil things. In fact, it would not be plausible if what we concealed ourselves in were evil things. When Adam and Eve reached for fig leaves, there's nothing wrong or sinful or poisonous about fig leaves in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with having a clean house. There's nothing wrong with being a great student or well-read or having well-behaved children or being a good musician or any of those things, but the moment you take those very good things and try to stitch together a righteousness for yourself and say, this is what will make that sense of guilt go away. This will mean that I don't have to be ashamed. This is what will make me acceptable before God and other people. And you've got a big problem. And here's the problem. It'll never work. It'll never work. One of the most astounding things about Genesis chapter 3 is in verse number 10. Look at it. Adam says to God, as God comes calling for him, Adam says this. In verse 10, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. But back in verse 7, he had already clothed himself with fig leaves. In verse 8, he already hid among the trees, and he was still naked. He was still naked open before God. It's the same for all of us. Hide all you want. Work all you want. Do all you want. But you will find that you cannot cover yourself. You cannot do it with silence. You cannot do it with blaming others. You cannot do it by trying harder or doing better. It will not take away that sense of condemnation. It will not take away the sense of being seen by Almighty God. It will not take away the sense That you need righteousness. And when you cannot cover yourself, you need God to cover you. That's the third thing that we see in this passage. We see God's solution, God's covering for our nakedness. God comes calling for Adam. In verse number 9, The Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree of which i commanded you you shall not eat of it anytime god asks questions it's not because he wants to know the answers it's not because he doesn't have the information so why is he asking God wants Adam and Eve to know that the only way to freedom, the only way to wholeness, the only way out of fear and insecurity is by being open and honest with Him. God is saying to them, come out from behind the tree and drop the fig leaves. Out of your hiding place, out of your secrecy, be open to me and admit what you have done. Come to me, He says, and I will clothe you. I will cover your sin. I will cover Your nakedness. Look at verse 21. It says, And also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin, and he clothed them. Friends, we have a God who will cover your sin, who will take away your guilt and shame if you will but only go to him and be open and honest before him. You see, there was a penalty for sin. God told Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's saying this, In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. But where did that penalty fall? On Adam and Eve? Did they die? No. It fell on the substitute. It fell on those animals that God killed to provide a cover for their nakedness. Adam and Eve left the garden clothed in the bloody righteousness of a substitute and with a promise and hope that they would return again one day. Ultimately, that penalty fell on God's son as he died naked under the wrath of, the God, wrath of God for your sins and for mine. N- well, nearly naked. Jesus had one thing on when he was crucified. It was a crown of thorns to symbolize the curse that God put on the ground for Adam's sake. One of the little-remembered aspects of Jesus' crucifixion is the shame that he endured for you and for me. Jesus had no sin of his own. He is the only one who could stand before God and others and be completely naked and completely unashamed. And yet on the cross, Jesus became our sub-soldiers. He was stripped of his robe and ridiculed by the Pharisees and every passerby. The cross of Jesus Christ is a dramatic picture of exposure, nakedness, and shame. In Christ, as your representative before God, you were already exposed to the perfect judgment of God. What you've always feared the most, being totally exposed, being totally open, being totally known in Jesus on the cross, has already come true. In Christ, the very worst thing about you has been uncovered for all to see and judged for the awful sin that it is. Christ bore your shame and rising from the dead, he covers you with his perfect righteousness. In Jesus, there is a covering for sin. There is a covering that deals with sin. Quoting the psalm that we read earlier, Paul tells us in Romans 4-7 this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All of your sins were counted towards Christ, and so now they are covered in God's sight. God did not sweep them under the rug. God did not forget about them. God did not pretend as though they didn't happen. God reckoned them to Jesus on the cross so that he could cover you with Jesus's Righteousness, As Paul tells us in Galatians, all of those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We saw a baptism earlier today. That all those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who are baptized into him, receive him as, his, as your status before God the Father. So if you, if you are here today and you do not Believe in Jesus. If Jesus is not the one covering you, you need to know that there is coming a day when all the other coverings will fall away and you will be naked and open before the judgment of God. One of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture in the book of Revelation says this And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of Of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There is a time when everything that you stitch together to make yourself acceptable before God will fall away. It cannot cover you. You cannot cover yourself. You already are open to the eyes of him who sees all. And so let go of your excuses, let go of your fig leaves, let go of your hiding. Come out and come to Christ so that you might be covered, so that you might have his righteousness and be able to stand before God on that day. If you come to God naked, open, and admitting who you are, admitting what you've done, if you come believing, as the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. God will clothe you. God's not out to get you. God has come seeking sinners. Be open to him so that you may be clothed with Christ's righteousness. If you do believe in Christ, if you know Jesus, friends, I want to commend to you that you come to God and be open and honest before him with your sins. I said that silence and effort is exhausting. And if, and if you are at any level trying to patch together righteousness, to look to something else to make you acceptable before God, to give you a standing with other people, you know that that's true. It's exhausting. Give it up. Let go of your need to be thought of as the dependable one. Let go of your need to be thought of as the righteous one, of the smart one the one who knows the most Bible, the one with the best put-together family, and look to Christ alone for your righteousness. Final application I want to give us today for those of us who know Jesus, and especially those here at our church. I talked earlier about loneliness and that sin isolates us. Sin separates us. Sin can make us lonely, even in a, in a crowded room full of people, smiling saints. And if that's you, I want you to consider doing what James tells us in his epistle, to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. Especially if there are things in your life that no one knows about and you think no one will ever know about. That's isolating you. That's keeping you from other people. Christian families, Christian churches should be the one place in the world that we can find true fellowship, that we can find true knowing of one another because Christian families, Christian churches are the one place in the world where sin can be dealt with. If you've ever gone to a brother or sister and you've told them about a flaw, a fault, a failure, a sin, and you've had them pronounce Christ's righteousness over you to tell you that God does indeed forgive you, and that you're acceptable to him in Christ, and that they will help you put things right. You know what a wonderful experience that is. John tells us that we have fellowship with one another as we walk in the light. And so I'm going to commend to you, confessing your sins to one another, praying for one another, and giving one another the word of Christ. Let me conclude with another quote from Bonhoeffer as he exhorted a congregation to do just the same thing. He said this, My dear friends, those who have experienced what it means for God to lift us up out of great sin and forgive us, to whom God has sent another brother or sister to whom we might then confess our sins, that person will surely lose all inclination to judge or hold grudges and will instead want but one thing, to help bear the distresses of others, to serve, to help, forgive, without measure and without qualification, without end. Lord, our God, may we experience your mercy so that we too may practice mercy toward one another without end. End quote. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have come seeking us, that you have come seeking us in your Son, that you might clothe us in his righteousness, that you might give us your own righteousness. Father, I pray that we would all cast away our fig leaves and our hiding and our concealing and come to you, that we might know the joy of your salvation, so that we might extend that joy to others. In Jesus' name, amen.